0: The following podcast is part of the MindBodySpirit.fm podcast network. Welcome to season two of Students of Mind, the podcast where we aim to normalize conversations about mental health. Last season, we connected you with experts in the field of mental health to provide an understanding of topics and illnesses that may not have been easily accessible this season we will continue our learning journey together by not only speaking to experts but also by listening to the voices and stories of real people who are living surviving and even thriving while also facing challenges with their mental health in their everyday life this season we want to hear your stories to get the full truth of what it's like to manage one's mental health and navigate living with mental illness. My name is Jade, and in today's episode, we will continue the body image series with a discussion about diet culture and its roots and systems of oppression. This episode features two discussions. The first with psychologist, EMDR, and gender therapist, Dr. Sand Chang, and the second is with a yoga instructor and anti-diet activist, Aisha Nash. I hope by listening to the show, you're able to learn something new and gain some encouragement through hearing our experts and listening to the journeys of our guests. However, this show is not a substitute for professional advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Always seek the advice of your mental health professional or other qualified health provider with any questions you may have about your condition. Never disregard professional advice or delay in seeking it because of something you have heard on the Students of Mind podcast. Today's first guest is Dr. Sand Chang. Sand is a licensed psychologist, certified EMDR therapist, and gender therapist and specialist with more than 15 years of experience providing training and mental health services. Their clinical and advocacy work are informed by social justice and cultural awareness and humility. In our discussion, San talks about their own eating disorder journey, the ways in which the DSM is limited when it comes to eating disorder diagnosis, how systems of oppression contribute to diet culture and weight stigma, and the need to include LGBTQ individuals in conversations about eating disorders and body image issues. Good morning, Dr. Chang. Thank you so much for being here. Wow, thank you so much for having me and you can call me Sand. Sand. Okay, great. Um, So before we get into the topic, can you tell us a little bit about yourself and the work that you
1: do? Yeah, sure. So I'm Dr. Sand Chang. My pronouns are they, them. I'm a Chinese-American, non-binary, gender-fluid, queer psychologist living on unceded Ohlone land, also known as Oakland, California. And I split my time between private practice, psychotherapy, and organizational consulting and training on diversity, equity, and inclusion. And the main focus of my work is really body liberation. I mean that in the broadest sense. So whatever is keeping people from feeling at home and safe and free in their bodies, whether it be white supremacy, colonialism, cis-heteropatriarchy, diet culture, or anything else.
0: Great. Thank you. Um, I think that's a perfect segue into my first question, which is just, um, what is diet culture? So can you just talk about what that means and how it shows up for people? Yeah. Yeah, sure. I mean, I, I think I
1: want to first name that, you know, when I first was recognizing diet culture and the impact on my life and the people around me, basically everywhere in society, I, I, I still had a limited view. I thought this was just about um, weight or appearance, and I didn't really connect it to the larger systems. And so I am so grateful that I came to really see it in a broader sense. And so I now think of diet culture as a a tool of social control and a system that we all live in that teaches us that thin bodies are more valuable than fat or larger bodies, and that so-called health is a moral imperative. And it's important to name that diet culture has its roots in anti-Blackness and white supremacy as well as capitalism. And if you want more information, or if anyone wants more information about that, Sabrina String's book, Fearing the Black Body, um, The Racial Origins of Fatphobia, is a great um, text that talks about that history. And you know what I found is that even for people who are radical or politicized or people who do ad- advocacy or activism or anti-oppression work, diet culture and anti-fat bias really still goes unchecked.
0: Yeah, that I talked to someone else about like racism and diet culture and they mentioned that book as well.
1: Yeah, yeah, it's just um I think been illuminating especially for a lot of people who have been doing work in these like body positive body liberation spaces to see oh this is this doesn't exist outside the context of what we all live in which is white supremacy.
0: Yeah, so um before we go into more of that Uh, you mentioned a little bit about like your own journey. So can you talk about your journey um, with like body image stuff and navigating diet culture?
1: Yeah, absolutely. And I'll I'll say that it took me so many years to actually come out. um, Because as a professional, and I think this is not just with eating disorders, but as professionals, we're really taught that we're supposed to be neutral, and we're supposed to be the ones helping someone else who has the problem. And basically what that does is disconnects us from our communities. And so I've been in eating disorders recovery for like, I don't know, 15 plus years. And I grew up uh, definitely feeling like I didn't, I just wasn't right in my body. And there were lots of reasons why, and I can never actually pinpoint like this is exactly why, but I grew up going, I was spent a lot of my time in dance studios with white skinny girls. And so I, you know, was different in terms of being Asian, in terms of being in a bigger body, even as a kid, um, in terms of, you know, being from an immigrant family and um, also feeling like I wasn't like the other girls. I don't really feel like I have a a more, what would be considered like a medicalized narrative in terms of being trans or non-binary, but I definitely didn't feel like the other girls. Um, And so that I think um, all contributed to me developing lots of different ways to cope with different forms of stress. And a lot of that was about controlling my food, controlling my body. Um, my particular eating disorder was very restrictive and I was a compulsive exerciser as a dancer. And so, yeah, that, that I think it took me a long time to also see that this wasn't just about me having a disorder, right? This wasn't just about me as an individual somehow having a distortion or me, you know, developing some kind of pathology, rather than me reacting to my environment.
0: Yeah, I, I think that's a great way to put it. I think it can, when, when people talk about eating disorders, it can get so like medicalized when you don't really hear people talk about like the role it took in people's lives. Like I know for me, I was just so anxious when I was like in the thick of my eating disorder and the eating disorder did a great job of like helping me cope with that anxiety. But unfortunately, it's just a really unhealthy coping mechanism. Um, and I don't think people really understand that. Yeah,
1: I'm so glad you mean that. Thank you so much for sharing that. Because I think traditional eating disorders treatment and a lot of the ways that we look at mental health problems in general are to really treat them as like something really bad, like a problem, something we need to be ashamed of. And something that is maybe like trying to out to get us or trying to kill us. And the way that I see my eating disorder is that I had parts of me that I definitely didn't feel like I could um, show to the world. There were really hurt and vulnerable parts of me. And then other parts that came in to protect me by helping me to assimilate, helping me to cope, helping me to deal with stress. And so... I think of this as a form of survival and actually a form of resilience rather than some kind of mental illness.
0: Yeah, I agree. And I feel like just speaking about it in that way helps with having to deal with it. It makes it feel less like... There's something wrong with me you know
1: right exactly yeah. and you know one of my approaches that and probably what i use the most in my practice as a therapist is an approach called internal family systems or ifs and in this approach we are talking about different parts of us and that um, there are parts that are protecting us um, and actually might have a good intention for us and rather than say you know go away or stop this we actually have to befriend and take care of and nurture and heal those parts of us so that they don't have to keep working so hard um to try to help us because they might not know that there's also harm happening so not to get too much into the nitty-gritty of psychotherapy but i just think that it there's so much possibility here for self-compassion and for being able to treat the eating disorder not as some kind of um, thing that we need to just get rid of, but maybe something that we need to help heal.
0: Yeah, and I think, you know, like related to this, um, talking about like the DSM, um, can you talk about some of the limitations that exist around eating disorders in the DSM? Yeah, absolutely. So the DSM,
1: um, for people, people who might not be familiar, is a diagnostic and statistical manual of mental disorders. Um, And even the name itself is so alienating and inaccessible. And it's basically this giant book that psychiatrists, the American Psychiatry Association created to say, this is what we've deemed as disorders. And here are the criteria that you have to meet in order to get a disorder. Um, or to get a diagnosis. And so the eating disorders section in the DSM for pretty much all of the history of the DSM has been incredibly limited. For the most part, it's been anorexia and bulimia. And then most recently in the last edition, binge eating disorder was added. And there's also ARFID, there's also rumination and you know things that we don't talk about or hear about quite as much. And I'll say that that those are not necessarily areas of specialty for me, but um, I did kind of have a sense even before I was in full recovery from my eating disorder. And I think it's because I knew I had an eating disorder and I knew that I didn't meet the criteria in the DSM. And so I actually did my dissertation on the topic, and I wanted to look specifically. I was looking at Chinese Americans, and I was looking at symptoms rather than full syndrome. So I was interested in asking about binge eating and any compensatory behaviors or restriction or um, any sort of body image concerns. And I say body image in in quotes now, but I'm interested in that because I think most of the people who, I don't even want to say have a diagnosis or have a disorder. Most of the people who are suffering from some form of disordered eating or eating disorders actually wouldn't meet full criteria because the criteria is so strict. And it really is based on, and most of the research is based on like white college students. And therefore this whole eating disorder stereotype and who eating disorders treatment is centered around is typically white, cis, het women, um, upper middle class, educated, et cetera. So, um, I think there's been a lot of great movement in the past several years and a lot of great activism to try to break that down and make sure that people who don't fit that stereotype who need help get to get to have help you know people who you know people of color people um who might not fit full criteria uh trans folks non binary folks men uh so i I think there's still a lot of work to be done but that we really need to get away from these very strict DSM categorizations.
0: Yeah, I agree. It is like completely alienating. I think Uh, especially with things like orthorexia and things of that nature, like they're not in there. And I know people who struggle with that. Hearing that it's still not considered like a real eating disorder, can be really hard to hear when you're struggling. And it's like, Maybe I'm not like deserving of help, you know?
1: Right, exactly. And thank you for naming that orthorexia, which is a preoccupation with eating healthy, maybe. Over concern with what's what's in your food, etc. Um, that I definitely fit the criteria for that. That's not in the DSM. And really, what it is is it's so rewarding our society. It's like in everyday conversations, people are saying, "Oh, you're so good. Oh my gosh, you eat so healthy," and and things like that. And so it's it's kind of glamorized. And I mean, we look at like pop culture, we look at the media, we look at Hollywood, and how everyone cares about what the next white skinny woman is eating or not eating. <laughs> it's like, yeah. And and the reason why this is so important, it's not that it's just about diagnosis, is that diagnosis is often the ticket to be able to get treatment. It's the t- t- ticket to being believed. Um, and it's so important when you're in pain to be able to be believed about it. And if someone says, oh, no, I wasn't able to check all those boxes, then your insurance might come not... Um, pay for treatment if you need it a therapist might not take it seriously the people around you might not take it seriously they might even say oh you look so good which is actually really harmful um, and perpetuates the idea that thinner is better
0: yeah so we talked a little bit about um, you know how diet culture is like rooted in anti-blackness can you talk, you mentioned this on your website as like one of your um, like approaches. So can you talk about how systems of oppression contribute to diet culture and weight stigma? Yeah, sure. I mean, I can't think
1: of a system of oppression that's not connected to diet culture and weight stigma. Like we could like get out a big Venn diagram with all the circles and we could we could connect all of it. And essentially what it's all about is who gets access to being seen as good, who gets to have a good body. And, you know, we know that many groups don't get to have a good body. And so, for example, if you're seen as having a bad body in some way because of race, because of size, because of ability, um, gender, anything else, um, then there's this pressure, right? Because we all wanna be accepted, we all want to belong. And there is often this pressure to find some way to compensate. And sometimes when there are things that are out of our control and we can't change and people are going to mistreat us based on it, then we grasp for illusions of control. We grasp for the places where we think, maybe I can compensate in this way. And I think that that's what can happen a lot with people um, in marginalized bodies. Um, who develop eating disorders. And it's not just about, I want to look like this model or something like that. It's it's actually about, I just, I want to um, cope with the fact that I am facing marginalization or oppression or discrimination. And, you know, weight stigma does contribute so much to oppression. So just a few examples is that People in larger bodies um, make significantly less money. Like if you, you know, there's research that, you know, shows that um, that is a place where there is wage inequality. Um, For example, there's so much inaccessibility for fat folks um, on airplanes is a great example. Or, you know, even just being able to access seats in restaurants, um, which is like, something that's, you know, you just want to be able to be in spaces, be in public spaces. Um, Or there, I mean, there's so much here. And, and, you know, there's research that also suggests that it's not being in a larger body. And people always say, well, what about being healthy? It's, um, well, it's not just someone's weight. It's not the number or the size. There is a correlation with some health problems, but it's not actually about that all the time, it is um, weight stigma has been shown to potentially be uh, have a stronger um, correlation. Um, and so people who experience weight stigma, that's actually what's hurting their health. So basically, oppression kills. And um, it's not just about this number on the scale that is arbitrary and doesn't actually tell us about someone's health about how their organs are functioning or about the the levels um that they might need to keep in you know um that that might be deemed healthy by the medical establishment. So anyway, I, I there is so much to say here. I could just keep talking, but um it's a it's a piece of the eating disorders conversation that is surprisingly missing in mainstream eating disorders treatment.
0: Yeah, and I think something that I feel like is talked about even less is like eating disorders in LGBTQ plus communities, Uh um, and how that experience is different. So can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, I mean, I think
1: the everyone who's left out, it's I mean, it's just like a it's like a perfect microcosm of power and privilege and who is even thought of in any conversations about health or wellness. Um, health or wellness shouldn't be owned or belong to um, white people, white communities, white conversations, right? And um, similarly, they shouldn't belong to straight, you know, cishet um communities either. So let's see, what do I want to say about this is that I think that there's we we do know that so what we know is that LGBT people, LGBTQIA plus people, whatever acronym you want to use, there is a higher incidence of eating disorders. There's also a higher incidence of a lot of things smoking. Um, substance use, um, depression, anxiety. and, And so it's not just about, I want a skinny, pretty body. It's about coping with what might be referred to as minority stress, or maybe I'd like to say minoritized stress. And it's just what it's like to live in a world that doesn't see your body, doesn't view it as worthy. And so that minority stress or minoritized stress really contributes to, well, if you have more stress, you need to find more ways to cope. You need to find other ways to cope. And so I think that's how people turn to these survival strategies. Now with LGBTQ communities, um, I think mainstream eating disorders spaces are talking more about gay men maybe cis gay men, probably white cis gay men. And we do know that there are some elevated rates of eating disorder behaviors there. Um, But the conversation doesn't really transfer over as much to talking about the L or the B or the T. And there's some pretty pretty good um, research in the past few years that really has opened people's eyes to how much trans communities are impacted, and this is a growing body of research. But one of the a pretty important study in 2015 by Deemer and her colleagues um, looked at college age uh, college age people, of course, because that's what all of our research is done on, and looked at eating disorders. And they asked, you know, about who had been diagnosed with an eating disorder in the year prior to taking the survey. And trans folks endorsed 16% as opposed to for cis women and cis men, it was less than 2% for, for both of those groups. Um, I don't have the research right in front of me, so I could be I, I could be slightly misquoting it. That's why I'm kind of rounding up. But, um, but what we can deduce from that lar- very large survey study is that trans folks in that group were eight times more likely to have been diagnosed in the past year than cis folks. And so if we think about it, it's like, okay, all of our treatment, all of our research, everything centers white people, centers cis people and straight people, but look who is actually suffering. And we really actually need to move away from this idea that we need to include trans or queer people in this work rather than like, we need to actually be centering. Queer and trans bodies. And so I'm really big on saying, and you know, along with a lot of other amazing people who are doing work in these spaces that I have to say, like I, I have learned so much from, is that we don't need a seat at someone else's table. We need our own table. So um fuck diversity and inclusion. You know, what does equity, what does liberation look like?
0: Yeah, and I I I think that kind of like the your work, because of that, just makes me so hopeful about, you know, the way things are going. Um, and you. so, yeah.
1: It's <laughs> um, hard. It's hard. There's so much work to do. There's so much work to do. I know. And I, you know, I always say that my job is to put myself out of a job. Mm. And I mean, there's just, there's so much. I don't know that I'll ever be out of this job.
0: <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I was gonna say like this. This is it's 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 a lot to tackle, <laughs> um, and a lot that we're kind of going towards. So, um, what are the ways? Because I know you have your practice. So, what are the ways that you support people through your practice and create a, a more inclusive space?
1: Yeah,
0: I mean it's interesting
1: because um, people. It, I've been doing eating disorders work for a really long time, but I haven't I've been so focused in my work in trans health spaces that I really didn't put a lot of energy into marketing or anything like that around eating disorders work. It actually was through me coming into fuller recovery myself that I and starting to make these connections. It wasn't like, "Oh, I work in trans health and I work in eating disorders." And starting to really see that I could do work at the intersections and get away from trans health equals medicalization, trans health equals everything, hormones and surgery, which it's really important. People need access, but there are all these other conversations we need to be having. And so as I started to move in that direction, more and more people have come to me because of being at these intersections and because of my own lived experience. And I think that's something that's shifted over the past few years too, is that we used to have to hide Lived experience, pretend we're not people. People <laughs> pretend that we don't have like wisdom in our bodies. Um, and so that's shifted. And I'm just, I just want to be real with people. And so it's about meeting people where they're at, seeing where there's some challenge, but also really bringing a lot of compassion, right? Not saying, that's bad diet culture. Stop thinking that way. We know we, so many of us know we have this information, but we're in pain and we're doing anything we can to survive. So all that intellectual knowledge and information doesn't mean any, really anything. We actually need to do some deeper internal healing work. Um, and we need to be in community. So I think of it as how do I help people? And like I mentioned, I use internal family systems. I also use somatic experiencing and EMDR. I think of myself as a somatic trauma therapist. And when the body doesn't feel like a safe place, sometimes it's really hard to do healing work with the body. And so sometimes we have to start really what my people, people might think is just so a drop in the bucket, you know, um, but first is just even being able to start tolerating feeling. You now, A lot of us have used eating disorders or those coping strategies to help us to not feel pain. And so to even create safer spaces, to be able to feel, um, to tolerate even a little bit more emotion, to tolerate a little bit more sensation in our bodies. And so I try to help people to ground in their bodies um if it feels safe to do that always with consent um and i try to help them to get to know their particular parts that are um active in their eating disorder so i'll share that you know i'll, I'll, I'll i you know i'm more and more comfortable sharing personally about my own experience so you know when i was doing i, I there are so many things that have helped me along the way (laughs) with eating disorders, with my eating disorder. And some of those things were behavioral. It was just like putting limits on, in the beginning, it was just putting limits on how many hours I could exercise. It was just like, no more. And that was really concrete. Um, And then I kind of went down a route that I kind of wish I hadn't, but there were some good things about it around getting to know myself. Um, But down a route that was, um still very steeped in diet culture around kind of controlling in a sense you know abstaining from certain things um i really you know come from a body trust and health at every size and intuitive eating approach now where i don't feel like there are good foods and bad foods so even in my recovery i was still orthorexic um but when i got to using with a therapist internal family systems for my own eating disorder I envisioned a a huge room with all of my parts <laughs> and and with me and, and and there were certain parts that were essentially on a panel, and I, I feel a little silly saying that because it's very academic, <laughs> but they were on a panel, and they all had something to say. You know, they all had they all needed to be heard. There were ones that were like, "If we don't do this, this bad thing's gonna happen and I had to listen to that, and I had to validate that, and there were other parts that you know so some were just really concerned about relationships and how I was being perceived. Some were really concerned about having to feel there was a part that was <laughs> that was outside of the room doing step aerobics. I mean <laughs> it was like so ridiculous, but that part didn't even want to sit still, it wanted to keep moving. And I had to work in that to befriend these parts and get to hear them and listen to them and help them to unburden, help them to let go of so much of these fears that they were holding and to build more trust in me and to build more resource within me to be able to um, be in my body and to integrate the things that I, I knew, but I didn't yet feel. So I don't know if that sort of paints a picture that very much informs my work. And, you know, as I'm talking, I'm closing my eyes because it's sort of like I'm envisioning this and, and this is what my, my healing a snapshot of what my healing has looked like. And so I mean, it's really different from a lot of mainstream eating disorders treatment. It's it's really different from let's challenge that irrational thought you have about your body. You're not fat. And it's like still so fat phobic, right? When it's trying to tell someone who's in a thin body, like, don't worry, you're not fat. Like it's like all these things that are just like fucked up in eating disorders treatment. Um, and I, I don't use those approaches. I think about the the relationships we have to our parts and ourselves. So that's just kind of a lot. I don't know if you want to hear all of that, but I wanted to sort of like give it as a snapshot so you can kind of get a sense of paints a picture of, of what the work actually looks like.
0: Yeah, no, that's really helpful. I think because you, you mentioned a little bit how just in the past couple of years it started to be okay for like providers to be more open about their experiences And like, I've noticed that too. Um, And it's just so helpful to have a provider who it it just kind of makes you guys more human. (laughs) And it helps with connecting on kind of a deeper level. And it's like, this isn't just a person who like went to school and like read a textbook about what I'm going through. This is someone who like has lived experience. And I feel like that also helps with like, patient to provider trust.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And I thank you for saying that because my traditional analytic training um, in grad school, psychoanalytic training was very much like, you have to be neutral. I mean, some of my professors were like talking about culture and talking about sort of The analytic third and you know what's in the room between the two people but like for the most part it was like you don't self disclose unless there is like a really, really good reason to do that and the idea of disclosure is like all about privilege and what people can see and what they assume and don't assume anyway, but um, like this idea like even in like traditional psychoanalysis like Freudian psychoanalysis, someone would be lying on a couch and you would be behind them. They wouldn't even be seeing you. So you would be this like disembodied voice behind them. And so we've come a long way. And I think that um, social media has actually had a huge impact on that shift where Um, people have been coming out, not providers, people have been coming out and talking about their lived experience and how helpful that is. Some of the people I trust the most who do eating disorders work in the field, they don't have letters after their name. They haven't, you know, done any fancy schmancy research. They have lived experience and they know how to be fucking decent human beings to the person that they are interacting with instead of like, you know, just a like condescending authority. And so um, I think that that actually has been modeling for me. I learned so much from people who aren't necessarily like psychologists or necessarily in in the field, we'll say, but that lived experience is so important. And I I, I was scared in the beginning of my career, like my clients, I was taught that I shouldn't be in spaces that they were in, like essentially the, like disconnected from my own communities. And traditionally healers were part of their communities in every culture. And so, but I was told like, you shouldn't like be out, you shouldn't be in the same places. And I was a performer and I am, you know, I mean, not, not so much right now, but, you know, people would come to queer spaces and I was performing and I had to manage that because I wasn't going to get, I was wasn't going to give up that aspect of who I was because I had to sit in a room by myself as a therapist and pretend that I never left. And my clients over time were like, "I'm so glad to see that you're a person," or "I really appreciated reading this thing you wrote about your own experience and your person." So, I just don't really have that stuff anymore about oh, um, you know, keeping my identities private. And there, I, I have boundaries. <laughs> I have, you know, I really need boundaries and privacy. But I, I feel like I'm really out these days. I'm sober. I've been sober for a really long time. I'm, you know, have all sorts of my own mental health stuff, um, eating disorders, anxiety, all of it, you know. And, um, and I don't really have shame about that. I'm just like, oh, that's part of the way my humanness showed up.
0: Okay, so I just have two more questions. Um, are there any um, resources that you would suggest for people in, who sh- struggle with food and body and weight bias in marginalized communities and bodies?
1: Yeah, I mean, I think there's, like I mentioned, Sabrina Strings' book, which is a little bit more academic, Um but it, but it's good. And, um, there are other books that I do recommend. Um, so one is the body is not an apology, um, by Sonia Renee Taylor. Um, so that I think is a, a great read, um, and is pretty accessible. Um, and then there's just tons of people on social media who are saying really smart things. And I'm always like, write a book, you know because i don't know social media is so fleeting it sort of comes and goes i want you know these folks to be creating things you know for anyway what they're doing is great um and i'll just name some of the people that i think are doing really awesome um work and that people should follow so um jessica wilson is a black dietitian, queer dietitian um, who has just been super vocal and done amazing work on raising awareness around eating disorders um, and uh, white supremacy. And yeah, just amazing person, colleague, friend, Um, Gloria Lucas of Nalgona Positivity Pride. Awesome work um, and has really done a lot around women of color, eating disorders um Sonali Rashetwar is the fat sex therapist also amazing just like I'm such a fan um Sid Yang is doing great work uh around um a fellow Asian API um non-binary person um doing eating disorders healing work um gosh there's so many um the queer counselor Haley um Oh, there's so much Whitney Trotter um, who is a dietitian. Oh, Caleb Luna, um, Alicia McCullough, the black and black and embodied um, third wheel. ED uh, be nourished. Oh, Ilya Parker, decolonizing fitness. Um, I mean, I could just go on. There's just so, so many, um, voices I,
0: I, I'm like oh, I want to name them all I should probably make a list um, Sam Dillon yeah, I was going to say you can <laughs> send me a list if you want to and then I can yeah. include so yeah, there's in so
1: many, yeah but I'll say yeah these are people I, I learned from
0: great um, so lastly what are some ways that myself and my audience can stay up to date with you and any of the work that you're doing
1: mm. Um. I'm not as active on social media, but I do have an Instagram. It's at hey Dr Sand, H E Y D R S A N D. Uh, they can go to my website, sandchang.com. And over the next year or so, I'm going to be developing a lot of course material, classes, things that people can access. So yeah, they can find out about it by going to my website. Yeah.
0: Great. Thank you so much for being here. I'm glad we were finally able to work this out.
1: Thank you so much for inviting me. It's, um, it's, uh, it's healing for me to be able to share my story. And I hope that it helps someone else.
0: Yeah, great. Thank you. Today's second guest is Aisha Nash. Aisha is a yoga instructor who teaches anti-diet yoga, a yoga practice that is trauma informed, body neutral, and focuses on feelings and sensations as opposed to how you look. In our conversation, Aisha talks about her journey from studying biology at her university to being a chef at Michelin star restaurants to eventually learning about the origins of diet culture and becoming an inclusive yoga instructor. Hi Aisha, thank you so much for being here.
2: Hi Jade, thank you so much for asking me to do this.
0: Yeah, I'm really excited to have our conversation. Um, So before we get into the topic of today, can you tell us a little bit about yourself and the work that you do?
2: Of course. So hi everyone, I'm Aisha Nash. I am primarily a yoga teacher and I've come to it through a very convoluted route. I spent a lot of my childhood and my teens being very obsessed with the human body and anatomy. And through family illness, I went to study biology at university. Directly after that, I did the complete opposite and trained to become a pastry chef because um, research science just seemed a little boring and very clinical to me and I couldn't get my head around it so I did the absolute opposite that I really really ever could and became an apprenticeship and worked my way through loads of kitchens I did competitions and along the way through that I burned out I ended up with loads of injuries lots of um, mental health issues going on and yoga was always like this little backbone through my life. My mom got me into it when I was a kid. So I knew I liked it. And I used it to rehab not just my body because of the physical postures, but also to rehab my state of mind. And, um, you know, when you burn out of a career that there's a lot of self hatred and low self esteem that comes with that. So it really helped me through all of that. After a couple of years of uh, practicing and working at yoga studios, I thought I would do my yoga teacher training. And actually, yoga studios ended up being the most toxic places I've ever worked in. And I say that as someone who's worked in Michelin starred restaurants. And it was only when I stopped working in said places, I realized how much I had gone down the hole of disordered eating. And now I do the complete opposite. I tell everybody how terrible, um, the wellness industry and the diet culture is for us as humans. And I focus on teaching a culturally appreciative yoga class and occasionally have rants about diet culture.
0: Great. Thank you. Um, yeah, I, I, found your story really interesting because I feel like I mean now I know you you know you went to school for something completely different than your like work in restaurants and then you went from that to yoga. So I just thought your your journey has been really interesting.
2: Thank you. I um, you <laughs> Yeah.
0: <laughs>
2: um
0: so you talked a little bit about how you fell into some disordered eating. Um, And so can we talk a little bit more about that and about your relationship with body image and kind of when um, that started being, you know, something at the forefront of your mind?
2: Yes, of course. So I've always had a complicated relationship with my body because I grew up around a lot of ill health through no fault of the people who suffered um, the ill health. But because of that, it led to an almost hypochondriac state. And because of this, I grew up with being very aware of my health and what my health was, hence wanting to study further um, about what made me healthy, what made people unhealthy and so on. And during that time, I had a not the greatest relationship with my body, but I kind of got on with it. And especially through uni, I did lots of weightlifting. It was my fun, safe, safe thing to do. And within being a chef that, um, that reliance on endorphins and weightlifting was taken away because chef life is incredibly chaotic and takes up many hours of your day. I would work 16 hour shifts, and that would be like a minimum. And when you're working 16 hour days, and the day is 24 hours, you're, you're sacrificing a lot else to get sleep in. So because of that, I um, lost all sorts of fitness and my body image suffered. Also, when being a chef, you have to taste everything. So my my health did suffer when I was a chef. My bo- My body image did suffer also but nowhere near as much as when I worked in a place that was vigilant about people's bodies. And this was the yoga studio that I then go on to work in after, um, leaving chefing. Everyone that I worked with was the tiniest human possible. And my body is not built like that. And because of that, I would go on so many diets, so many wellness regimes, so many cleansers. And my colleagues around me were doing the exact same. And one day I remember one person speaking specifically about how like, she was not on a diet, but she was gluten free. And because of being gluten free and being scared of gluten, because of it being a wellness trend, she'd actually trained her body to be allergic to gluten i.e. this person was not allergic to gluten but due to cutting it out for so many years when she tried to introduce it back in she had appointments with her doctor because she had some horrible reactions it turns out she'd caused herself to become celiac and that moment there made me realize like what am i doing like why am i doing this that combined with this feeling that Because my body was never built to be really slim, I am a curvy person. I've always, always been a curvy person. Even when I was really slim, I'd still carry my weight in specific parts of my body that made me look curvy. I kind of snapped out of it. And I was like, if you, you, (laughs) this person that's really tiny, are struggling so much, then when am I ever going to get there? When am I ever going to be okay with it and happy with what my body looks like? And that was the moment that changed everything. And I started really researching dieting, reading books like Intuitive Eating, and all books that discussed how dieting maybe wasn't the best thing in the world. And do keep in mind, I still approached intuitive eating right at the very beginning as, ah, this tells me I can eat what I want. All right, cool. I'm going to eat what I want. But I still want to get smaller. Like, I still had that mentality. And it's something that has taken a lot of work to I don't want to say no longer get that and no longer get those thoughts, but get them a lot less and no longer act on them. Because it's with everything that we're surrounded by with all the media and all the stories that we get in hollywood there's always the 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 skinny the skinnier you are the happier your life is narrative so i still do get those thoughts i still do get those days where my body image relationship is the worst thing in the world but i know deep down that doesn't affect who I am as a human being and that food and looks and all of these things do not dictate how good a person I am or how good I am at my job yeah so it's it's been a long long winded way to get here
0: yeah i i think it's i really like the fact that you mentioned that you know it's not that all of your thoughts are completely gone, but they're decreased significantly. I think I know for me, when I like follow people on social media who are about, you know, like showing like the truth about diet culture, it seems like they're, they've gotten to a place where all of their thoughts around body image and food are gone. Mm -hmm. Um, And it's, and it feel it's for me it's like how will i ever get there um but hearing that you know someone who's doing this work um kind of like being honest about the fact that not all of those thoughts are gone like helps me be okay with the fact that i still have those thoughts sometimes too
2: oh they'll they'll this is hard to say and i wish it wasn't that way but they will always be there like We have so many thoughts in a day, at least one is always going to think that because of all that we surround, not all that we surround ourselves with within diet culture, but also the way that the world surrounds us with diet culture. And the thing that I always want to be and I'm unsure if it comes off in my Instagram feed, but I do hope it does is I want to be honest about this. It's not a walk in a park. It's not an easy thing to do, especially when the majority of the world won't understand your narrative, your need to work on your relationship without weight loss. But you can get there, where it's maybe five thoughts as opposed to 5,000.
0: Right, yeah. And that's helpful. Um, I think... My next question is about yoga and just about, like, wondering what drew you to yoga specifically. And, um, you know, after you were able to get out of that toxic environment at the yoga studio, how are you able to kind of like transform your relationship with yoga to help with body image?
2: Yeah, of course. So I have always liked yoga my mum got me into it when I was a child. She used to go to classes and she'd bring me along because I was this tiny little flexible thing. And she'd show off like, look, look at all that my daughter can do, you know, because children are incredibly flexible. And it was always like a backbone, me and her would do our little yoga exercises in the morning. And I grew up with also a lot of religion. My mother is Muslim. I also went to Catholic school. So I've always grown up with there being some sort of rule book on how to live. But because I was surrounded by so many of them, it kind of backfired and I would constantly question them. And my mom never had an answer for why the things were the things and why they were the things. And yoga kind of gave an answer or it gave a, it gave one answer generally, which was focus on your breath. This then translated to me when I was 18, going back into yoga because I'd kind of lapsed, you know, being a teenager and going to school and, and people teasing for being Brown and then liking yoga. Um, so I, I left it a bit. And when I was in uni, I started going to Bikram yoga classes, you know, the really hot ones, because that was the only stuff around my area that I lived in. And the teacher noticed that I breathed completely wrong. I, I was so concerned with stuck sucking in my stomach, so that my stomach didn't look large or big. That I didn't expand my stomach or my lungs when I breathed in. Um, so that was, that was a revelation that I, I'd spent so many years not breathing in to anywhere near as much air as I could, because I was scared of looking a little bit larger. Um, yeah, that, that one, it kind of hits quite close to home, right? Yeah. And, Then when I left chefing and I went back into a yoga world as of sorts and I was surrounded by so much disordered eating and I was surrounded by incredibly toxic human beings. Let's not um, try and uh, cover up. They were not good people. And I got fired from that job actually. And that was kind of the start of, like, that was how I escaped it. I escaped it because they fired me. And it was in that I had to make those decisions of, do I spend the rest of my time feeling sad and upset over what I've lost? Or do I move on? Do I pick up and realize that this path I'm going down has a reason behind it? There's a reason that this happened. And I'm now looking back at it, I'm so thankful that that happened because I cannot imagine the state that I would be in if I was still working there.
0: Um, yeah, I, I I think it's things like that are always, you know, when you look back on them, hmm. it's like, oh, I'm so glad that happened, but I can imagine in the moment that must've been really hard
2: yeah, it was so hard. And it was it was doubly hard, because it was after my yoga teacher training, I'd made the decision to leave Chaffing, I'd made the decision that that wasn't a career for me, it, it was a wonderful time, but that wasn't the career for me. And then this happening in like my next sort of role, it really hurt. And I really had to pick up the pieces. And I ended up um, going to CBT therapy, CBT group therapy and that helped a lot with my mental state with trying to figure out what I was what I wanted to be where I wanted to go and I fell into a wonderful group of people uh through kind of a yoga teacher acquaintance who's since become uh, an amazing friend and she guided me towards this group called Yogis of Color and up until this time, my career through yoga and had been very whitewashed. I'd been to very white yoga studios, I'd only worked in white owned yoga studios. And I didn't know any yoga teachers that were not white, other than this one acquaintance. And the first time I entered, we we'd have Sunday brunches together. The first time I entered the room, it was like, I could take a deep breath in. And it was a group of people who also like me just didn't fit into the yoga studios that are in London. The people that were going through similar situations as I had gone through. And it was miraculous. It was beautiful to be surrounded by people who ate food and who didn't talk about food like it was something to be managed and something to be scared of. And that rhetoric had always confused me because coming from my chef background, the idea of people being scared of food is upsetting because it's incredible. And it's such a privilege to be able to eat what you want, right? And to have access to the food that you want. And I guess through that group, they, they modeled this way of sitting within yourself and being okay with yourself. That combined with me having quit dieting for the first time, those two work together so well to provide me with a space in which I felt held. And I do think like, if any of you are listening to this and are thinking of quitting dieting and are thinking of going down the path of being anti-diet, that is what you need. You need a community around you holding you because it is so, so hard when it goes against everything you've ever been told.
0: Yeah, can, can you talk a little bit about just diet culture in general and like, what diet culture is and, you know, how you know, we're kind of exposed to it constantly?
2: Of course, of course. Diet culture is this prevalence of a narrative in which thinness is superior and it can be wrapped up in in many different terms like healthism which is the way that we now treat people when they're thin as though they are morally better than people uh who are fat so it leads to fat phobia and we are around this all the time i mean I grew up in the 90s where there were many magazines that would discuss how all these celebrities had um, fat stomachs and cellulite and all of these things. And I grew up completely surrounded by it, taking all of that in. And those magazines still exist today. You'll see them. They're the they're the kind of trashier magazines where they'll discuss everybody's size. but it's not even that it's movies about fat characters who are only allowed to love themselves once they've lost weight or if they have a head injury it is tv characters and i mean children's tv characters being fat uh being written as fat characters and then they're bad The villains in children's uh, stories are generally always fat. Children take that in. We all take that in. Like Ursula from The Little Mermaid, that's an example. So it's something that is so ingrained in us that fat jokes are viewed as normal. And people are celebrated for losing weight. Like um, many celebrities, Adele, um, Rebel Wilson, there's adoration for people who are able to lose weight and keep it off, even though that's nothing to do with their morality or how good a person they are. That was a very long-winded answer. I hope I answered the actual question.
0: (laughs) Yeah, you did, definitely. I think that was a really vivid way to put it, especially I, I didn't even think about you know like kids cartoons and and the ways that that also communicates this narrative of like thinness being superior so that was a really interesting connection um so on on instagram and like your website i see that you talk a lot about the connection between racism and diet culture. So can you talk a little bit about that connection?
2: Of course. Um, And everything that I speak about is primarily in the book written by Dr. Sabrina Strings called Fearing the Black Body. When I read that book, it broke me. I was already on an anti-diet journey. I was already on a journey of body acceptance of unraveling my biases about everything I'd grown up in. I was on this real path of trying to figure out like, where all my thoughts come from. And I read this book that blew my mind because Dr. Sabrina Strings talks about the correlation between diet culture and fat phobia and the transatlantic slave trade, i.e. chattel slavery. And I have always liked studying English history and British history because it's endlessly fascinating for me. In fact, those are my two favorites, history and anatomy. So I knew lots of stories about English kings. And I knew that there were many, many English kings that were quite large and i remember reading in none of the narratives did anybody ever use the word lazy or stupid towards them until after a certain time and it really correlated with everything that um dr sabrina strings wrote about in her book which is that diet culture is pure anti-blackness and it's used to keep white people in line by scaring them with this idea that if you become large, you'll become unattractive and you'll become a little bit too much looking like black people. And like Dr. Sabrina Strings goes into it, into a lot more detail. That's a a very short version of it, but it fits in with what I know as well from learning about the Royal histories where Henry the eighth was a very large man. And he was generally before chattel slavery. And then later you get the Georgians and the Hanoverians who were mocked and called lazy and stupid for being fat. Whereas the ones before the transatlantic slave trade happened, they were; not those words were never used about them. In fact, poor people used to wish that they could be fat because they viewed fat as a protectorant of the body. And, there are, there are so many correlations between the classism and the racism of what happened, because it also meant that poorer people had more access to food and could actually become fat. And at that same time, it became the worst thing to ever do. It became a moral failure. So yeah, it's, it's racist and it's classist and it's terrible.
0: Yeah, I, I've been working my way through Fearing the Black Body, um, and it's very, like, mind-blowing <laughs> for me, um, especially in the sections where they talk about um, the ways Black people are portrayed in art. Um, I think that's something that stood out to me a lot.
2: Completely. Mm-hmm. Especially, like, before slavery, Black people existed all around the world, and they most definitely existed in England. There has been records, but those words were never used. The words lazy and stupid were never used. And then we go into the BMI scale and we go into physiognomy, and this comes specifically because you have to do a mental gymnastics to mistreat human beings. Like, if you look at human beings and you're mistreating them, we're all human, we all have levels of empathy and sympathy and humanity. So if you are mistreating people, especially in the way that, you know, the the slave owners, the kidnappers, the abductors did, you have to do a lot of mental gymnastics to get to the point where they did. And they considered black people and to be a completely different species using this idea of physiognomy of judging people on their looks and it still has such far reaching consequences with how we are towards people not just racism but how we judge people based on their looks and it's so wrong
0: yeah i i think um talking about not only racism but like classism and the way we judge people off of you know body types and not just skin color is also really important.
2: Another thing with that classism which um, I always find funny and I like to add into this point because it does hammer home this idea that once poor people can do it rich people or rich European people view it as the worst thing ever before spices were easily available i.e before the transatlantic slave trade and before colonialization spices were really expensive spices were only for rich people and rich people would have incredibly heavily spiced foods in fact queen elizabeth the she used to love candied fennel seeds and later when spices become very easily and readily available all of a sudden the finer cuisine in Europe is food that is fresh and barely cooked and you know not really seasoned that well you can see it now in like what is considered French food and what is considered British food it generally has no spice and also no flavor but generally no spice
0: (laughs) yeah that's really interesting I think also something mentioned in the book is um how sugar was you know, not readily available to everyone. And then once it was the narrative around how it affects you kind of shifted.
2: Oh, yes, completely.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: completely. Yeah.
0: Um, so we've talked about, you know, your journey with yoga and then also diet culture and a little bit about racism and diet culture. So now can you talk about your practice that you have and you know the ways that you help people um, with some of the things that they go through through
2: your practice of course i like very much to hold space for people to come away from their body being the be all and end all of their morality so i teach a appreciative version of yoga in which i will consistently remind people and discuss the philosophy that is yoga I transcribe to this idea of the the eight limbed path and it has morality in it it has um, ethics in it there's a little bit of movement and it is a beautiful backbone to base your life on not to blame yourself if it goes wrong but <laughs> A very nice backbone to go along with. And I use this as a model for people so that they can discover things that are more about how they really feel instead of how they've been told to feel. I, within my yoga sessions, I hold a lot of space so that people can really move only in the ways that they want to to begin to peel away those layers of needing to be productive because of, of the capitalist society that we live in. And instead, finding a place where movement becomes joyful, because while our relationship through to food has been and become such a battleground because of diet culture, so has our relationship to movement it's been taken away from us because of diet culture turning it into exercise and punishment so because of that I want to hold space for people to discover the movement that they like and know that it's their morality and who they are as a person is not affected by that
0: yeah that sounds beautiful I think there definitely needs to be more spaces like that where I think there's a lot of pressure in the yoga spaces that are very common right now, Mm. Um, and I just feel like if there were more spaces where some of that pressure isn't there, there would be much more comfortable, um, inclusive, and just more of a healing space than like a workout space.
2: Yes, exactly. And through all that I post and all that I speak about, all the workshops that I hold, and all the spaces that I hold for people to talk about this, what has come up to me is that a lot of people have found these places to be incredibly toxic, which goes against all that yoga is. But we're taught a very whitewashed version of yoga, and we are taught a very Appropriated version of yoga because when when the British Raj colonized India, it made yoga illegal and due to that, the things that we have and the things that we have access to have been heavily colonized and were only allowed if it was about fitness. Nowadays, people will tell you that the mother of yoga is Indra Devi and to me she's one of the first white women that kind of sold yoga she was a a, an eastern european actress that then took on an indian name and went all through hollywood and sold yoga as this way to keep yourself beautiful so because of this and because of colonizers bringing diet culture with them to india and to south asia even the translations we have sometimes are so embedded with that overriding diet culture that your looks are more important. And I like to to question whether it would actually be there if it wasn't because of colonism.
0: Um, so I just have a follow-up question. Um, do you do like one-on-one sessions or are your classes more like
2: group-based? I like to keep them very democratic, so I like to keep them as group classes. That means they're affordable for the majority of people. I feel that's a a fairer way to hold space.
0: Yeah, and I, I think that was, you know, my next question is just about inclusivity and accessibility to people in marginalized communities and bodies. Like, I know you're someone who's creating a space for people to be able to show up as themselves in a yoga space. Do you feel like there's more of that happening? Um, and like, have you seen a difference, say, like, five or 10 years ago?
2: Oh, yeah. But it ha- hasn't been five or 10 years. It, to be honest to me, the real change has come because of COVID-19 because of the pandemic, all of these places that are not a good business model, because please do keep in mind yoga studios are not a good business model, they're based on getting a whole load of people in, paying the teacher as little as possible, charging the student as much as possible, paying exorbitant rates in uh, rent. It's it's not a model that's going to survive. But what has happened because of COVID-19 and all of these places having to close down is they've all moved online and teachers themselves have moved online and when you practice at home you can have your camera on, you can have your camera off, you have access to teachers teaching it all times of day and night, you have access to your favorite teacher, you have access to different teachers, you have access to the ability to go, you know what, I didn't like that teacher five minutes in, I'm just gonna like put this on mute, put the camera off, pretend that I like, pretend that I'm there but I'm not actually there, so it really levels the playing field for people who who may not have been able to afford coming to those rather expensive places it levels the playing field for people who may have avoided those spaces because of all the mirrors that they may have been surrounded by or the marketing that just immediately made them want to go nope i'm not going here i won't be welcome here so because of covid-19 and the online yoga revolution that has occurred. I feel a lot more people have access to yoga. And because most yoga teachers have the heart of like the softest hearts in the world, we are so welcoming and okay with people coming for free. We're so okay and welcoming of people coming for less than, you know, what we'd what we'd appreciate, if that makes sense, like, you know, we're, we're good with people paying what they can or sliding scales because we want it to be accessible. We know it's an amazing practice. We know that it's life changing and we want it to be inclusive and accessible.
0: Great. So lastly, can you tell me how my audience and I can stay up to date with you and the work that you do?
2: Of course. The best way to stay in contact with me is via my Instagram, via my website, or via my Patreon page. My Patreon page is a really cool space in which people are invited to be exactly who they are. I film and record short 10-15 minute um, workouts, joyful movement, yoga practices, and I upload them weekly. I share um, recorded audio meditations and also my favorite sources and resources on the journey that I'm on. So that's a really cool space to be in. I share a bit more in that than I do on my Instagram, but that one has a paywall behind it. So if free access is my Instagram. Yeah.
0: Okay, great. Thank you so much for being here and having this conversation. I, I feel like we covered things that I didn't even expect to cover, so... I really appreciate you being here and sharing your story and your insights.
2: No worries. Thank you so much once again for asking me. And thank you, everyone who has listened to this. That's absolutely amazing. Thank you.
0: Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Students of Mind. For me, this was an extremely insightful episode and I learned a lot while interviewing Sand and Aisha, so I hope you all listening also learned something. Be sure to check out Sand and Aisha on Instagram and on their websites, which will all be listed in the description. If you'd like to follow and get to know the students of Mine team, all of our links are in the description as well. If you have a moment, please rate and review the show. This helps our episodes and all of the information within them reach more ears. Thank you again for listening and I will see you next time.